listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thank you for listening to episode 300. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I was going to say it's <laughs> the 300th episode. <laughs> I love it. So we tried really hard. We just didn't have a lot of time. We had a couple of companies that were interested in doing something with us for a 300 episode. We just couldn't pull it off. We're going to still end up doing something with those companies and invite our audiences and have some fun. But for now, it's just the three of us yep. recording a 300 episode. Let me pause. And thank each and every single one of you. If you're a new listener, if you're an old listener, this is the largest and most listened to oil and gas podcast in the world because of you. And all of our success is because you listen. And from the bottom of my heart. And, and my heart. heart. Yes. We thank you. Without you, we wouldn't be here. So we we just love you to death. And thank you for allowing us to have a piece of your day and sharing you know the news about the oil and gas industry. All right. Well, we're doing First Friday Q&A, aren't we? We're doing First Friday Q&A. Before we get to that, want to leave us a review in a very easy way. Just go to the show. Just click on it no matter what device you're on. It'll allow you to leave a review. Then if you came to our last mixer, thank you. It was one of the most well-attended mixers we ever did. We're going to do one every month this year here in Houston. And eventually we're going to spread out. But if you want to join us, it's Thursday, April 27th. The link will be in the show notes. We had a great time. And of course, the money we raised goes to Red M to help fight human sex trafficking. If you come, come find me and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you in person. Yeah, if they can find you. If they can find you. Well, last time I was doing, oh, which by the way, we launched another podcast called the Mixer Connection Podcast. So if you want to hear the backstory of the company that sponsored the Mixer and some of the stuff that's going on, listen to that. That actually should be out about the same time this show comes out. So just another OGGN podcast to the mix, the Woo. Mixer Connection. You want to read the review since it's a bit lengthy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is a five-star review from insert creative name here. <laughs> I love, I love that. <laughs> Good oil and gas news source. I'm just a lay person that doesn't work in oil and gas. And I use oil and gas this week to get my oil and gas news. That was mouthy. Yep. Ooh, usually around 30 minutes a week, an episode helps me understand what's going on in energy. And hey, we all use energy. I find this citizen journalism to be more useful than the old way of listening to activists or I mean journalists <laughs> tell me what's happening and why it matters. We live in amazing times when we can listen to people doing actual work on the ground. Mark is obviously passionate and knowledgeable about oil and gas, and it's great to listen to someone who enjoys their craft as much as him. I don't always understand what Mark and Paige are talking about, but that's okay. There's nothing wrong with learning as you listen to news. Arguably, that's the way it should be. I'm thankful to be living in the times where I can hear industry news straight from practitioners. Maybe I'm the only normie that listens to this podcast, but I suspect not. Mark and Paige are doing Good work, not only for oil and gas professionals, but for folks who want tangible info on what's happening. In terms of politics, Mark is prone to both sides speak, so I can only take him at his word. But to me, it's clear only one political party wants to keep energy poor. So I hope he's calling it as he sees it, not bowing to pressure. You so. want to read the note part for a comment? Oh, note to Apple. I can't make paragraphs and reviews. What the heck? Sorry for the wall of text. I tried. 
Not only can you not make paragraphs, you can't copy and paste an Apple review. Yeah, it's we really have to use a, another tool just to get that moved yeah. over. So, But insert creative name from here from the United States. I am not walking both sides. I am a moderate with conservative tendencies. And I am the last person to bow to political pressure. You won't right. ever see that happen. Yeah. And we have a geopolitical show. So if you want to hear some <laughs> more takes on the geopolitical show, go listen to Jordan. He's killing it over there. Oh, never fails. Never fails. All right. Well, let's get into the questions. First, as always, Ludwig, what do you think about the Total lawsuit? It is interesting. If this would make sense, then I'd rather get money from Roy. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that was missing. Royal Dutch Shell due to fueling the Luftwaffe. Okay. Or Ford for selling tanks to the Nazi regime. <laughs> It is interesting, at least. Total is French, and they had some issues with the USA and were sanctioned by the USA. So actually, everything he talks about in here is legit. At some point in our history before World War II started, Ford did sell tanks to the Germans, and Royal Dutch Shell absolutely feel the Luftwaffe. This lawsuit is the second time this has happened. These are fringe activist groups that are suing Total, which is a French super major. And they're saying that one of their subsidiaries makes an additive, which is used for jet fuel that Russians are using to fuel their fighter jets Mm. in the fight against Ukraine. The first time this was brought to court, it was thrown out because there was no legal grounds. So both the French court and the French counterterrorism government group dug into this, and there was no connection between Total and this company that makes an additive for jet fuel. Total does have an interest in the company. It has a small ownership percentage. But the company does not make jet fuel, and the additive they're talking about, there's no way to trace that it actually ends up in the tanks of Russian fighter jets. So this is just another activist group trying to start trouble. Total, I'll tell you this much, I don't always agree with Total's politics or with the French government, but they are absolutely anti-Russian. And there's no way that that the Total management team and executives would allow anything that they make to end up in Russian fighter jets. So this is just some fringe groups trying to start trouble. Mm, Typical. Typical, yep. Yep. Okay, so Tom Willett writes in, Hi there, love the show. Here in the UK, after the Alpha Piper disaster, you need a third party to conduct a well review. What are your thoughts on having it mandated in the USA? It might stop the small minority who cut corners and who practices bring a bad reputation to the wider industry. Understand the pushback against more government regulations and those who are against our industry won't change their mind by improving best practice, but could be a positive step. Thanks, Tom. So, Tom, I actually agree with you. I would not want it to be a government organization. I'd want it to be a private organization. And maybe it, it would be configured where the experts are doing well inspections. And there's you know a handful of companies out there here and in Europe and around the world that do this for a living. They get paid for, to do this. They could rotate in as expertise and come in as an independent third party and do a separate well review other than the owner and the drilling operator. I love this idea. And I know there's some additional costs that would be added to it. But this would keep everything safe, and it would just add another layer of protection. I agree with you, though. I do see how people would push back and say it's more government regulation, but it's not that much more government regulation. And like I said, I would not want a government agency to do this. I'd want to be experts from our industry as an independent third party. What do you think, Paige? For some reason, I already thought that was a thing. But not necessarily on pipelines. I feel like it's like on other things. Like No, no, this is for well reviews. Oh, well. Oh, for well. Okay. I misread that. Yeah. So this was something that was suggested after the BP Mikado disaster. Well, that was what I was thinking because I think that's what happens when they test BOPs, right? Right. So when you test a BOP, which is part of testing, doing a well review, 
if you have the manufacturer of the BOP sends out their people, so think Technip FMC, you have the operators to think of Chevron or BP, they have their own BOP inspection. And then there's always a third party independent. And all three of them have separate checklists they go through to make sure that BOP is buttoned up like it should be. And I could tell you some horror stories about that not happening or parts of the world where people were paid off to check the oh. box and it was, oh yeah, horrible stuff. But so what he's talking about is literally well reviews in itself. So I think this is something I would love to support. This was something that was suggested by the federal government at the PP Maganda disaster, but they wanted the federal government to do it. Oh. And they also wanted the craziness of every well site in the U.S. had to have cameras on the bottom of the ocean with live feeds and government employees would watch it. And so luckily the API stepped in and said, hey, federal government. Yeah, I remember that. Your day job really isn't me- regulate and making sure wells are safe. We're kind of good at this. So we came up with recommended practice 75, which then later yeah. became API 75, which is the regulations that support this. So. The government talked about it, but the way they wanted to implement it would have been horrible for the industry, having non-experts making decisions on whether to stop work or not, trying to have, trying not to laugh, making companies make sure they have the bandwidth and equipment to have live feeds from the bottom of the ocean and paying government employees to sit there and watch it. Total waste of tax money. But once API recommended practice 75 came in, this third party thing kind of disappeared. I would support this 100%. Yeah, yeah. Okie dokie. Dylan Morton writes in, staff geologist at Midcon Energy Operating. Hi, Paige and Mark. I have been listening religiously since 2020, and I have left a five-star review. Thank you. Sometime around then. I love the show, and you both do such an amazing job. I learn something new every time I listen. I just started listening. I have completed an internship at Denbury. They dropped the resources, Mark, just <laughs> FYI. Sorry. It's going to take me five <laughs> years to quit calling them Denbury resources. <laughs> Finished my MS degree in petroleum geology at Oklahoma State University, which will be over there pretty soon. Yeah. And started a full-time with Midcon Energy, primarily a secondary enhanced oil recovery company with focus on conventional oil and gas as well. Having now worked with both secondary and tertiary EOR, I love the aspect of squeezing every last drop of hydrocarbons possible out of existing reservoirs. Mark, you talk about new discoveries by Exxon, Shell, et cetera, in the offshore realm, and finding new reserves is important, but what are your thoughts on the importance of maximizing current reservoirs in the L48 and around the world using EOR? After primary production, there is often a lot of resources left behind depending on the reservoir. In secondary EOR, we often see a production peak that surpasses primary production in response to water injection. And the economics typically makes sense because most of the development wells are already in place and can be used to set up injection patterns, et cetera. Keep crushing you too, Dylan. Love the question, Dylan. Hey, you know what? I bet we're the only podcast in the world that gets these type of questions. Probably. <laughs> so enhanced oil recovery, absolutely love it. Let me tell you who's really good at coming in and after primary production and getting every ounce of hydrocarbons out of the ground economically is the Norwegians. So big shout out to... All our Norwegian listeners out there, they basically pioneered a lot of the conventional resources, EOR, especially things like deep water, enhanced oil recovery. And they're really, really good at using the science and the techniques and the tools available to get every drop of oil out of those reservoirs. And Dylan, I agree 100% with you. That's something that really should be focused on. It's interesting to watch here in the U.S. And you talk about the lower 48. What I'm talking about now is literally the offshore conventional reservoirs. Let's leave, let's leave the unconventionals out of this. 
But if you look at the offshore conventional reservoirs, financially what happens is there's this trade-off. So the big guys come in, they do the big projects, they make the big monies with the first round of production, and then typically they sell it to smaller operators who then comes back and do the secondary round of production and make money there. And so what happens is that the production is moved from the major operators to smaller operators to smaller operators to smaller operators. And so you don't always see it on the books of Chevron and, and everybody else, but the practice still happens. And like I said, I 100% believe it's you're driving efficiencies and you're working around parameters that are already known, which means that it's much safer for the environment, much safer for your employees. And quite honestly, to your point, you sometimes can make more money with secondary recovery than you can with primary recovery, which then makes it just good for the industry. But yes, a huge, huge huge fan of enhanced oil recovery on conventional wells. All right. Louis Levine writes in career advice. I found your podcast when I started working in oil and gas just over a year ago. I love the industry, the people I work with and the work that I am doing. Currently doing GIS work, gaining project management skills and machine learning with our corrosion group. My only complaint right now is pay. I am midstream side. I also have a decent real estate background as well. I'm definitely on the low side of the industry, but skills I am gaining right now are invaluable. My question to you is, do I stick it out a few years in midstream for years, or do I seek a new job in upstream that may pay more, but possibly might be siloed into a boring GIS job? Love the podcast. Will you be at GIS Energy Conference in Houston at the end of April? So first thing is, I don't believe we're at the conference. I don't remember seeing that on the books. GIS is Geographic Information Systems, Systems, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, Lewis, one of the things is there's this pent-up demand in pipeline projects in North America. And the economics are there. The money is there. The need is there. The people willing to sign long-term contracts to move product is there. What the pipeline companies are waiting on is for a political realm to change, which will happen relatively soon. So if I was you, since you have the background in midstream around GIS, just hold on, hold on for another couple of years. And once all these projects kick off, you're going to have the opposite problem. You're going to have people throwing money at you left and right, and you have to decide which company you want to make the hop for, or do you leverage the fact that other companies want to hire you for more money with your current company and ask for a raise to bring you up to where you should be? Now, you could move to upstream, and you could actually move to a lot of the big technology companies that sell to the upstream side of the industry. If I was you, if you can hold out just for another couple of years in the pipeline side of the business, once all this pent-up demand is removed and you have all these projects going on all over North America, it's going to get crazy busy. And like I said, you're going to be in super high demand, and you'll be making the big bucks. Okay. The next one is from Luke Gordon. Hi, Mr. LaCour. (laughs) (laughs) I stumbled across the Oil & Gas This Week podcast a few months ago while researching Talus Energy for a school stock pitch that I've been a devoted listener ever since. I wanted to reach out to express my gratitude to yourself, Paige, and all the others that work behind the scenes to produce the show. I haven't missed an episode since I began listening, and it is entirely due to how well you explain these industries and your passion towards them. I really look forward to learning and listening each week and just wanted it to be known how much myself and others appreciate the work you all put in. Because of the podcast, I have since reflected on how much there is to learn regarding gas, oil, natural gas, and the broader energy sector as a whole. And was curious how you would recommend for a college student to go about starting along this path to eventually get a career in energy. Again, thank you so much. And I anxiously wait and congratulate you on episode 300. Thank you, Luke. You can drop the Mr. LaCour. 
but I, but I, do, I do appreciate the sincerity of that. Luke, you don't say what you're studying in school. You said you did a school stock pitch, but that could be all kinds of different degrees that would have that as something to do. So my suggestion to you is get an internship with a company you want to go work for when you graduate. But without knowing what you're studying, it's hard for me to tell you how to do that. Did you say where he's going to school? No. Why don't you just go look? He hooked up with you on LinkedIn. So you may uh, as well just go look at his profile. Yeah. Say, hey, Luke, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to reply to you on LinkedIn. I'm going to find out where you're going to school, what your degree's in, and then I will see if I can help you get an internship. Audience, I can't help all of you get internships. <laughs> I can't. I literally don't have time. So, you know, Luke, I'm going to reach out to you directly, see if I can help you. But for the rest of the audience, if you're a student and you're looking to get an internship, my bit of advice would be start a year ahead of time. All of your peers are going to wait till the internships are open. So typically for the summer, those internships are opened in the fall. So for the summer of this year, the internships will have been opened in October, November, December yeah. of last year. Start a year ahead of time. Look at who offered the internships last year and proactively reach out to those companies, even though those internships aren't open. And I promise you, you'll get ahead of all your peers. But Luke, I'll reach out to you directly, see if I can help. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. All right. Samantha Rockchild, Regulatory and Compliance Manager at Southwestern Energy. Paige, what is going on in Louisiana with Governor Edwards fighting the EPA to control carbon capture and storage in his state? Love the show, guys. Please keep it up. All right. Well, I went down one hell of a rabbit hole. <laughs> Apparently, the EPA is moving pretty slow to allow states to permit and oversee carbon reduction projects. It has also cost slowing down in millions of dollars in investments designed to tackle greenhouse gas reduction. And apparently Louisiana filed for class six primacy application in April, 2021. There are 19 of those permits that they have sitting out there for CCS. And governor Edwards wrote a letter to the EPA on January 18th, requesting that the EPA administrator, Michael Reagan, provide an update for preliminary decisions, the path for review, and then when the public comment period might begin and a designated point of contact. In February, Louisiana Republican U.S. Senator Bill Cassidy pressed the DOE about it at, in hearing in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee back in February and secured a commitment from Deputy Secretary Turk. I know that Administrator Reagan wrote back to Governor Edwards stating that there was a 60-day commenting period after the approval based off an article I found, but I couldn't locate the actual letter. So I went to the EPA website and went to see how many well permits there are. There are a total of 71, 69 submitted, two approved. Wow. So the two that are approved are in Illinois, and first one ever approved was back in 2014. It's in post-injection. And then the second one was approved at the end of 2021 and is still currently in injection. But I was just looking at all this. I mean, a lot of this, all of the states that have these permits out there, Alabama, Mississippi, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas has like three. And then like California has 28 Wow. Yeah. So it's pretty wild. I wonder what the delay is in permitting. Is it lack of manpower? I don't know because these are all in different districts. Right. So like, for instance, California's in District 9. So that's all that's in there. That's all that, you know, Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas, that's six. And then Illinois, Ohio, 
that's five. Mississippi and Alabama are four. So. Yeah. So, listener, I hope that helped. It's it's definitely looks like it's some huge delays. I have, we have no idea why. Yeah. No, I can't get down to the bottom of it. But you know, Governor Edwards isn't backing down. So even Mansion is like Senator Mansion is like what what's going on? Yeah, yeah. So any listeners out there to have some more information about this, let us know. And if you want to remain anonymous, let us know that. Well, too. I, I think it's still developing. We're still waiting because you know letters go back and forth all the time. So, right. Yeah. We'll see. Well, you know what? We'll keep y'all updated. I'll try to make sure that it's in the news for next week or whenever, whenever we get it. Breaks. We get an update. Yep. So. Okie dokie. So the next one is from Matthew Gart. Oil gas investor. Simple question. What does renewable actually mean? Are renewables really renewable or just different forms of energy derived from mined resources? That's a good question. Yeah. So it depends on what slice of time you're looking at. So the definition of renewable energy is basically energy from a source that is not depleted when used, such as solar or wind. However, at some point, the sun will run out of hydrogen. So it has an end life, which means that solar, if you look at a big enough slice of time, is not renewable. Before the sun runs out of hydrogen, it will turn into a red giant and burn the earth to a crisp. At that point, we'll have no more wind energy. So if you look at that slice of time, wind is also not renewable. Then to really get people mad at me, (laughs) (laughs) hydrocarbons are still being made right now. Not at the same rate as the Jurassic and Pleistocene era, but they're still being made. So by the definition of renewable energy, hydrocarbons are renewable. So I don't know if that answers your question, Matthew. I'm giving you the serious answer to the science, even though I made a little joke out of hydrocarbons, but totally legit. No source of energy is renewable if you look at a big enough slice of time. And what you see a lot of stuff in public is people equate renewable with better for the environment, which is not just a buzzword, really. Yeah, Yeah. So hopefully, Matt, that helps you. All right. Shelly Gonzalez, project manager at Halliburton asks, I'm a huge fan of the show and have been listening to you for years. What do you think? to think about our public schools teaching that fossil fuels is causing the world to heat up and we need to move to renewables. Huh. So I don't think any school should be teaching hypotheses as facts. Right. Forget energy, climate change, hydrocarbons, you know, anything that's hypothesis in any school, public school that our tax dollars are paying for should not ever be taught as facts. We should not teach our world's children that the earth is flat. We should not teach our world's children that Bigfoot steals people's wives. We should not teach people that burning fossil fuels is causing the world to heat up and we need to move to renewables. All of those are hypotheses, right? Now, I'm totally okay with schools teaching different theories and different hypotheses. But claim it as such. Right. So I spent way too much money and time when my son was in eighth grade in middle school because his school textbook talked about peaked oil. It's actually his biology textbook, and basically this, the textbook coincided with what a lot of people believed up until just recently. That was started by a shell scientist in the 50s called Hubbard. His name was actually King Hubbard. So if you're a scientist, That's your pretty first boss. name is King. <laughs> right? And he, using the tools and data he had at the time, he figured out that the world will start running out of oil and gas in the late 70s, and be we would just be totally depleted by 2010, 2015, something like that. Now, that was a hypothesis that was proven wrong, and I spent a lot of time and money, and I got them to change it in my school, my son's school biology textbook, because they were teaching something that was wrong, that was started off as a hypothesis that people believed, and it made its way into our education system. One of my biggest beliefs in trying to make the world a better place is making sure that our world's young people are properly educated on energy. 
not politics, not guesses, not hypotheses, but facts. So, Shelly, I think it's horrible if any school out there is teaching the kids that burning fossil fuels is causing the world to heat up we're headed, and we need to move toward renewables or we're going to destroy the planet. That should not be I allowed. would raise hell. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I didn't see that in my kids' stuff because yeah, I would have been all up in somebody's yeah, yeah. Something. This should not be taught because the other thing that, Shelly, that you may not be aware of is there's a lot of, of our world's young people think right out of high school and college that have stress around climate catastrophe. Like they're worried to death about like it causes mental health issues. And that's horrible. With as much stuff you have to deal with as an adolescent, you shouldn't have to be worried that you're, you're destroying the planet when it's not reality. All right. Yeah. Okay. Next one is from Kendra Washington. Hi, my name is Kendra Washington. I love the podcast and the information I'm given. I have a degree in criminal justice and getting certification in Competia security for cybersecurity. Do you have any advice on how I can get a job in oil and gas cybersecurity? Thanks in advance. So Kendra, I got a really good way for you to do it since you're in cybersecurity. Go to every major oil and gas corporation out there that, that you like, that you're a fan of, or that's local to, or relatively local to you, that are public. Because they're public, they're going to have in their investment relations page a document called a 10K. In that 10K, by law, the CEO has to outline any risk their business. And cybersecurity is always a big risk. Yep. You can read through that and you can find the companies that this oil and gas company hired to do tests on their cybersecurity. So basically, these big oil and gas companies pay other companies to try to hack them. And if they get in, they use that learning to make their cybersecurity stronger. Reach out to those companies that are hacking Chevron and ask for a job. I think that would be an ideal way. Now, I am not going to tell you to try to hack Chevron to prove I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> that there's a vulnerability. Yeah. However, I have seen it, and I have seen where cybersecurity experts that, that expose their vulnerability get hired to help make sure that vulnerability is taken care of. But I would hit the 10K, look at who's these big companies are hiring to test their cybersecurity and reach out to those companies. That would be, the, I think, the best and quickest way for you to get in the oil and gas industry in a cybersecurity role. Okay. Rachel Duncan, sales director at DuPont. I feel like you two are my favorite cousins. <laughs> That's such a Louisiana thing to say. Hey, cuz. <laughs> I've been a fan and listener for a while and appreciate the work you both put into the show. And your audio quality is fantastic. Thanks to Emin. Paige, I personally admire that you've shared your weight gain and loss story publicly. I relate and you made me feel better about my own post-COVID weight gain. So thank you for that. And Mark, I always love when you talk sales. Ever thought about doing bonus episodes around sales and oil and gas? Don't you have a podcast that's <laughs> sales <reading>. and marketing? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and big shout out to Tucker for his guard dart duty, dog duties. Hey, you yeah. got a shout out, buddy. Yeah, Tucker's right here guarding us. Well, <laughs> he's actually so, sleeping. But. <laughs> but that's how he guards us. Mm -hmm. Any squirrel that tries to break into the OGGN World Podcasting Headquarters. <laughs> We've never had one make it. So that shows that he's doing his yeah, job. Yeah. Rachel, so Paige is right. We actually have an all gas sales and marketing podcast. We launched it a couple months ago. You might have missed it, but we literally do nothing but talk about sales and marketing oil and gas. Just Google it or go to the OGGN channel in iTunes and, and you can find it. But if I can help you, reach out to me directly. Yep. Yep. Okay. Final one is from John McIntosh, Marketing Director at Valero. This is my favorite podcast of all time. Yeah. Please keep up the fantastic work. If we wanted to work with you to help educate the world, in what would we do and what would that look like? Love the show. Whoa. 
So, John, I'm not going to give you the complete answer on this podcast. I'll give you a high level. The way that would work is you'd reach out to us. I would be involved in the conversation. We would want to understand what you want to accomplish. And we're very honest and transparent. If you ask me to help you sell more Valero products, we will tell you no, that podcast is horrible at that because nobody likes to be sold to on a podcast. However, if let's say you wanted more people to understand the, your impact to the environment and how you take the way you operate in local communities seriously, that's education. And, and we would share with you how, and, and podcasts are excellent at that. So we'd say, yes, we can help educate the world. Here's how we've done it with other companies. And we would work through this whole process, explaining what we can do, what we can't do, how we would measure the stuff that we can do and how much it would cost. And at the end of that hour long conversation, you would know exactly what you will get what you won't get, and how much it will cost you. At that point, you can decide if you want to work with us or not. That's a very high-level overview of how that works. But That's how we handle every company that wants to work with us. If you want us to help you try to sell stuff, we most probably will tell you no very politely. If you want to help educate the world, which leads to sales, we're really good at that, and we're open to discussion. But that, that's how that would work. Thanks for asking the question. Yep. That's it for First Friday Q&A. That's it for First Friday Q&A, but you know what we do on First Friday Q&A? We look at stuff in history. This week, petroleum history. Guess what happened in 1951 today? I was not alive. Me neither. First oil well in North Dakota actually goes in production with a whopping eight barrels a day. Ooh. Yeah. Then let's see what else happened this week. Oh, here's a good one. Guess what, which was proposed and approved by the president of the U.S. in 1976? The Strategic Oil Reserve. Oh. Right? So President Gerald Ford signed the Naval Petroleum Reserve Production Act, which for the first time allowed a commercial development to store oil for our nation's war machine. Guess what happened in 1979? I'm not good. Why do you keep saying that? I'm I'm not good at guessing. 1979 was the beginning of the end of oil price controls after what happened with Iran and the Islamic Republic taking over Iran. That was during U.S. oil prices going crazy. President Jimmy Carter initiated a phased deregulation of price controls established by the Nixon administration to increase domestic production, which it actually did. Let's see what else really what good. Is the, what's with the oil pipe saxophone sculpture? Oil pipe saxophone sculpture? Where do you see that? I don't know. Did I not press the right link? Oh, you're talking about, oh, that. That looks like a saxophone. <laughs> yeah. So that's the Cold War. So unfortunately, we actually we had a B-52 crash that happened in 1966, and that B-52 was carrying a live nuclear bomb. And so we lost, kind of oopsie lost a nuclear bomb in the ocean. And so the Navy got together and built the first underwater cable-controlled operated vehicle to recover this nuclear bomb that was lost in the Mediterranean Sea. They were able to recover it. I think the depth was around 3,000 feet. And that cable control remote vehicle became what we use now as ROVs for our subsea installations. How cool is that? Yeah. And then finally, 1966 birthday to Tulsa Golden Driller. There's a 76-foot statue of oilfield worker known today as the Golden Driller, which I've seen several times. And today in 1966 is when it was announced and stood up an exhibition in Tulsa, Oklahoma. After several refurbs, the 22-ton statue contained 2.5 miles of rods and mesh with tons of plaster and concrete. And it's able to withstand winds up to 200 miles an hour. So that's this week in petroleum history. People love that. 
You know what else people love? What? Advertising with us. <laughs> I'm not going to go deep into that because some of y'all have given me grief. But if you want to advertise with us, just go to OGGN.com forward slash pricing. I will say this much, though. When you have marketing directors reaching out to you, want to know how to work you, that means some people like me talking about that. Weekly rig count, page. Where are we? As of March 31st, the United States is down three at 755. Canada is down 26 at 139. Internationally, we're up 14 at 915. So I'm not going to actually say good numbers. I'm going to actually say, wish you could do a little bit better than that. Still not bad numbers, right? Well, I mean, it's, it, we're going into spring, summer. Yeah. So, I mean, that's expected for Canada. Well, what I think is right? happening, this is a much, well, what I think happens, which is a much bigger story, which we'll talk about next time we do a news show, is I think the oil and gas industry globally is seeing the world's economy go slow down, mm. and which means there's not as much production. We're going to talk about OPEC cuts when we do our next news show and what OPEC's going on. So I think what's happening is you're going to see drilling back off a little bit hope i'm wrong about that yep this is not the show for that though this (laughs) is the show for me to promote our linkedin page go to linkedin follow our linkedin page it's the best way to learn about all the new stuff we're doing and while you're out there either go to oggn.com or oilandgasesweek.com is a place for you to submit your questions for your first friday q a like we just finished doing remember the goal is not to stump page and i but to help educate our audiences and while you're out there you might as well click the link in the show notes go sign up for a monthly oil and gas events email I've had 39 people ping me, and this is what, April 5th, about will the next newsletter have free OTC passes in it? I'm not going to tell you the answer to that. If you want to find out, <laughs> you have to sign up for Booyah. the email. Now, I will tell you this much. For the last 15 years, the May version of Modal Points events email has always had free OTC passes. So stay tuned for that. If you want to find out, you got to go sign up. If you're like myself or any of my experts to come speak at your event, we're actually going to be in Oklahoma in about... 10 days. Yeah. Uh, let us know. We're happy to share the details of that. We can bring a live podcast, which you probably heard us do a couple times and show people love that. Your investors love it too. I'll just let you know. Uh-huh. All right, Paige, you ready to get out of here? Yes. All right. Remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. Oh,